Hello, everyone. This is Tom Lutz. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Tom Lutz. He's the author of Do Nothing, Crying Crying, the Natural and Cultural History of Tears. And his debut novel released this year is called Born Slippy. He's also the founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Tom, hello. Hey, great to be here. Well, it's great to be with you. I got to say, your cowboy hat is fantastic. And when we get the selfie, I I get a selfie of us at the end of this. So everyone will see it on the social media and they'll know how fantastic it is when they listen. You know, I played in a country band for a while, and yeah, and and, and I had a hat very much like this, and they did not think this was a cowboy hat. This does not count as a cowboy hat. If you're in a hat band, I was in a you know neo traditionalist hat oh, band, okay. and they had the you know great big ten gallon with the curved up brims and the right. yeah. This doesn't count. This is this is like some cross between I forget what they call it actually. So essentially, the um, us urban fellas yeah. who don't know what's going on, we go well. That's a cowboy hat, but we get our ass kicked in cowboy country if we wore that. Absolutely, you know at. Uh, in, uh, in Silver Lake, they call it a cowboy hat. <laughs> in Silver Lake, they call it chic. They call it uh, urban chic. Ironic. I'm not sure about that. I think, it, I think it's just like an old guy's hat. You, yeah, so you played in a country band? What, what is, or is... Well, I was, in, I was teaching in Iowa, yeah. uh, and I was playing in, in um, blues bands and um, you know, rock bands and Latin bands in the Bay Area. And then I moved to Iowa, and I was playing in a blues band in Iowa, and uh, a country band was looking for a keyboard player, and yeah. they came to hear me play. Like, this group of guys in cowboy hats came into the blues wow. club, listened to me play, and asked me if I would audition, and I said, sure. And yeah. and they, you know, I had never listened to it. It was always kind of like joke music to me. I, was, I didn't really take it seriously. And... Uh, they gave me um, six, this will date when it was, they gave me six 90-minute cassette tapes of their repertoire. Yeah. They, they had a repertoire of hundreds and hundreds wow. of songs because they did all of the classics all the way back, and they did the latest Top 40 Nashville stuff. Wow. So, um, but I, you know, I sat down with the, with the tape, played it along with it, and I thought, oh, well, one, four, five, okay, another one, one, four, five, oh, there's a six minor. Okay, you know, piece of cake. It's all very standard progressions, very easy. So I thought, oh, I've got this. And I went into the rehearsal, and, uh, and they were clearly very disappointed. Because <laughs> I, you know, and like, for instance, they, 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 uh, we started playing this song, was Garth Brooks the chair uh-huh. was a hit at the time, and it had this little piano line at the beginning, dee 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 dee, and I, I, th- I thought, and I played along with it, but I'd never kind of like learned licks off the records. I just you know, got the structure and I improvised, right? So, I, I thought it was close enough, was close enough, and they thought, no, this is that's not the kind of band you're joining here. This is a this is a cover band, and our crowd doesn't like it if you don't have it right. Oh wow! Right, so. Um, so that you know, so I I said okay, and I you know I noodled it out. Melody's my weakest point as a musician, so I noodled it out. I found it. I'm like dee 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 dee, and they went okay, let's try it from the top. And, they, and I dee 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 dee, and they stopped it and said, well, can you do it a little bit more like this? And the guitar player played dee 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 dee, and I went dee 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 dee, and he goes no, a little bit more like dee 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 dee. I could not hear the difference. 
between what he was doing and what I was doing. It was like a like getting a, a classical musician to play rock, you know, or or, or funk. You know, they just like had no idea what a groove was and I did not get the country groove so it and eventually once I did get the groove I fell in love with country music I felt yeah I'm just it was completely I love playing those gigs you know it was a big big band back then and you know pedal steel and fiddle and the whole and and uh very um you know, great, very disciplined musicians, kind of yeah, like yeah. Motown. You know, as they played their parts, yeah. right? And uh, and it wasn't like a blues band where everybody's everybody's trying to sneak into the fills. You know, uh-huh. right, right. <laughs> so it was it was it was a really great experience. I loved every minute of it. And that's fantastic. You developed appreciation for it by just being immersed in it as a musician. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the groove, you know, it helped. It helped to learn how to two-step. I would dance on the breaks. And uh, and getting into the two-step dance vibe helped me find that groove too. And yeah, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a really it's an interesting music. I don't I don't know if you've been watching this uh, country music, um, the Ken Burns country music thing on on uh, PBS. Pretty good. It's good. Yeah. All right. Well, I love recommendations, and recommendations from PBS is usually better than uh, you got to watch the new demon anthology on Netflix but no I usually love those too I don't know <laughs> yeah I'm sorry that my hat has completely disrailed this, uh, this disrailed no it's made it amazing <laughs> it's a little you know we, I talk to authors but sometimes we talk about hats it's, this is how we just roll you got Born Slippies uh, came out last month yes how do you feel about that it's because you've written other books and yet you've also been a part of you know like doing reviews, Los Angeles review of books. How does it feel to have like your first novel out? Is it a little, um, what do you call it? Uh, what's the word? Anxiety provoking and vulnerable, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it surprised me. It, it, um, I mean, it hit me bef- you know, right when I, after, I, after I was in the publishing process, yeah. but not before that. I thought, you know, I've always written nonfiction, yeah. and I'd done a few little memoir-ish things, you know, things about... You know, my dad slapping me around and, you know, my tragic youth and all of that stuff. You know, I did a few little pieces like that. And, uh, and that, you know, you're in control of that, what, how much you're letting out, how much you're not letting out. And, uh, and, and, and I thought, well, with fiction, it's the perfect mask, right? You hide behind these characters. You, do, you, you don't have, right, what, what, what can go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and then as soon as I sent it off to get published, I thought, oh, my God, I feel so exposed. I have no idea where my Freudian slip is showing, right? right? And uh, I have no idea what, what I'm revealing because I don't know that I'm revealing because I'm a critic. So, you know, I'm, I've been talking about what Henry James was revealing that he didn't know he was revealing. Yeah, yeah. And that Willa Cather was revealing that she didn't know she was revealing. And... Uh, and Edith Wharton, who was hiding things on purpose and doing it really well, but you know, left it to be decoded, and you know, it's like so. I've been I've been reading that way forever, and I just lived in fear that people were going to read me that way, and because I'd be the last to know. Well, what's interesting is, it doesn't sound like you lived in that fear while you were in the process of writing the book. Is it? No, no, absolutely not. No, the writing the book was pure pleasure. Yeah, absolute pure pleasure. Just like. Um, giving myself over to that flow it's like it's a little bit like uh, being in the flow of music it's just like mindless bodiless you're just in you're in a you're in the zone 
and uh, I, I've never had so much fun writing as I did on that thing. Oh, really? Yeah. I, and then, yeah, I, I feel like, <laughs> I always feel like I'm really in the zone, and then I get to rewrite, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, what the yeah. hell did I just do? <laughs> oh, yeah, there's no, there's no relationship between the quality of your feeling while you're doing it and the quality of the writing. No, absolutely not. I, uh, I learned that a long time ago. <laughs> It's like even when I did when I used to write for the Chronicle and do you know do I was turning in articles three six articles a month for the Chronicle every time I turned one in, I knew my editor was going to find out I was a fraud I wasn't going to get a check anymore, and it never happened. Well, you know it's uh, the the imposter syndrome kind of keeps us uh, keeps us on our toes. I feel is that what it is? Because sometimes I feel like it almost uh, I yeah it's almost like I throw it out there. And then it scares me to death, and then my anxiety worries. But it's probably ego too, where I'm just no one gives a shit about it at the, at the most part in the end, you know. Yeah, you know, for me, I mean, once you reach the age of ninety, you just really <laughs> you relax about some of this stuff. But it still it still can kind of uh, flare up, you know, uh, in, in way, you know when you least expect it. Like yeah. in the middle of a reading, you know, it can, it can, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very funny, odd sensation to kind of feel like, you know, I really don't care. Like my, I don't, I feel like my identity is not for me to decide. Uh, it's not my job yeah, anymore. Yeah. yeah, I tried as hard as I could to craft one right. uh, for years and years and years, and uh, and I was always a little bit wrong. So now um, I'm done. Uh-huh. You all decide. Exactly. Yeah, it's like you know what's important to you. You got to wear the cowboy hat to the interview. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the cowboy hat is simply protection. You know, the sun is my enemy. Yeah. You know, and I just I'm hiding from the sun. That's all. Yeah, I gotta tell you, the the sun the last couple of days was it almost felt like it was uh, insulting me and intrusive. I just I it was assaultive. I felt it was, and now we're now it's freezing. So, and we love living in L.A. We love it. Yeah, yeah. So. It's a it's a it's a funny funny complaint to have when you've moved to you know among the sunniest places in the world. I know. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up here? Uh, East Coast. East Coast. Yeah. There's a, now the East Coast is a very long uh, <laughs> coast. Yeah. Well, I grew up the first. Uh, you know, uh, I guess it would be. When it, what are how old are you in sixth grade? Well, your first 11 years was in, um, in, in, uh, in New Jersey, so I was born in Jersey, and if I get really pissed at another driver, uh, my Jersey accent returns in full. Yeah. You know, I just... <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, and then I'm, we moved to Connecticut, kind of upscaled, and, uh, and then uh, I lived in New York State briefly, I lived upstate Connecticut briefly, I lived in, in Florida briefly. Uh, all you know when I was uh, lived for a year in, in Europe. Yeah. Because uh, my girlfriend moved there. You followed a girlfriend to Europe. What what, what country? Uh, she went. She she was in uh, in Switzerland. Uh-huh. Her father had, was a minister. Yeah. And um, and had uh, kind of abused his uh, position of power. Yeah. Um, tended to kind of sleep with all the grieving widows and that kind of thing. I mean, like really a, just a real piece of work. And so he, he had got sent to the Jung Institute. He was, he had done a PhD in Jungian psychology, got sent to the Jung Institute to kind of get his animal worked out. Um, and, uh, and took his, took his family with him and we were just out of high school. And, uh, so I went, I, 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 
you know, worked up, saved up my 600 bucks mowing lawns and doing landscaping and that kind of stuff. Went to Europe and for 600 bucks in 1971, you could you could live in Europe for 11 months, it turns out. Yeah. She had 600 bucks too, so we had 1,200 between us. We bought a little van for 50 bucks. We drove it around. We lived in it. Um, yeah, so I spent, spent 11 months there. Then came back, moved to Florida. I was, I was up and down the East Coast a little bit and then ended up in Iowa, of all places, unrelated to getting an academic job there many years later. Um, and that's where I started having kids and was doing my back-to-the-land hippie stuff and just being a kind of backwoods drug addict oh, really? numbskull. Yeah. <laughs> What um? What was it like when you were uh, in sixth grade and you you got to leave Jersey, which is the only home you know, and go to Connecticut, which probably felt like, you know, the other side of the earth at that time. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I it it was, uh, you know, in retrospect, it was it it, it must have been hard. I remember feeling completely out of it, you know, kind of like because you know, we moved to this town called Greenwich, Connecticut. My dad found a house that was beat up. I mean, like seriously beat up, like the windows blown out of it and um, the floors warped by the rain and stuff. It had been stuck in an estate for years. So he bought that and he and I basically worked on it for the next eight years. Um, every day, sanding, you know, windows and painting and, you know, building, rebuilding, you know, pieces of it and redoing the kitchen. So I, you know, which was great because I learned a bunch of, trade um but uh and um and then you know it was a it was a um it was a classic 70s you know dysfunctional family and so the fact that we had moved was a little weird during school time but the but the real weirdness was the rest of the time and that never changed so Right, so there's a, there was a kind of like it was a, a, a it was a regime of terror yeah. that uh, that that was you know kind of kept me centered. <laughs> it was so zen. It was it was like it was like getting in touch with Buddha. This abuse. <laughs> it was just it was just like the fact that the world had changed radically around me didn't make that much difference. Yeah, is all yeah. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> the um. And then, I mean, that's kind of a setup for your book, your novel, which is right there in the, um, the, the, the getting the house, the house in Connecticut and all that. It's yeah. almost paying homage to it. And sort of. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. Or exercising your demons. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, now that's, maybe that's in another novel. This is, this is, uh, it's the, the connection, uh, to the novel is that the fact that because I was working, you know, fixing up my house uh, as a kid, I knew how to do that stuff. And so one of the things as a wandering, you know, guy that couldn't really keep a job very well because I was I was deeply dysfunctional at that point. Um, And so I would get fired a lot. And so I did a lot of like picking up odd jobs. uh, And if somebody said um, I need somebody to do X, fix the plumbing in my kitchen, uh, fix the leak in the roof, fix the right, whatever, I could I could do it. So I d- ended up doing a lot of that kind of work, and that led to a little bit of, you know, remodel a kitchen here, remodel a bathroom there, and then finally did start, bu- you know, building a few houses. So I, I, I learned I, 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 the, what Frank is doing at the beginning of the novel 
which is odd jobbing and moving into the house building was was something that I did, something that I knew, and something that I that I also really love. You know, his love of framing is my love of framing. I I really do love that. Uh, there's there's something and 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 a lot of what I loved about it, this kind of like swinging a hammer to sink a nail. Um, you don't do that anymore. I mean, nobody uses a hammer, right? You, it's a, yeah, it's all it's all nail guns. So, um, and I had I had a little struggle with myself whether I was going to let Frank use a nail gun or not. But I I, fe- I felt like I couldn't do my ode to yeah. ode to that that kind of labor without the without the actual hammer. And there's there's got to be almost a freedom of having that much knowledge of just so you could go could go pick up work here and there. Were you able to pick up work like that when you were in uh, Switzerland and around then? Yeah, yeah, all all over. It was really really easy to always, always easy to get something to do. I also cooked in restaurants, so I could do that. And I had a little catering company for a while that on the side. So and I tended to live in these really backwoods, out of the way places because I wasn't fit for society. <laughs> So I lived in these really out-of-the-way places, and that meant that in order to make a living, you know, supporting a couple little kids, I needed to, I needed to have a few, a few side gigs. Yeah. And so when, uh, by the time you had kids, well, when, when, no, actually, when was it that you were like, you know what, I'm a writer. I, 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 gotta, I gotta get in this, this, this writing thing is burning in me. And, and it's not the gonorrhea, it's the writing. <laughs> I, uh... You know, I've I've told this story before, but I'll I'll tell it again. I uh, I ha- I was um, in sixth grade in this in this in this uh, actually it was in seventh grade, so I was still in this you know new place. Um, and I had a teacher. Her name was Miss Reese. I don't know if it was R I I S or R E E S E. I wanted to thank her in my first book, yeah. and I and I couldn't find her. I couldn't figure out who what her name was even. You know, oh, wow. so um, I ended up. Um, I ended up kind of, uh, oh, she gave, she gave us this assignment that was uh, write whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Uh, she didn't care if it was one sentence or a haiku or a, or a novel or a, she didn't care if it was prose, poetry, fiction, what, she didn't care. Just write whatever, whatever you know, you're mo- moved to write. So I um, reinvented, um, not knowing it existed already, I reinvented the epic modernist poem. And I wrote this thing that was in like six or eight different kind of very loose verse forms, um, you know, each in the, you know, in each of these sections that like cantos, but the, each one was in a different different form. And uh, it was all about this girl who had broken my heart, and and, uh, and um, she took me aside after after I had handed it in and said, you know, you have a gift. You, you really, there, you know, I, I see a lot of student work. I just, I was blown away. I was moved by it. And I, I just think this is really extraordinary. And I was already a pretty dysfunctional kid, so I, I had never been praised oh, yeah. for anything ever, right? Uh, literally never been praised for anything ever. Yeah. So this was like, this was, um, you know, mana to the soul. And I was like, I was, I was over the moon. So I kind of decided that day that I was a writer. Yeah. And it's that, that sense of myself as a writer stayed with me ever since. So um, it cut to 30 years later. I'm here in Los Angeles. My best friend from those years turns out to be living down the street from me. Whoa. And uh, 
And so we get together and we're kind of catching up. Well, for you know, 30 years, uh, 30 years of elapsed time. And uh, and I told him this story about Miss Reese and how that's why I'm a, I'm a writer. And he said, Oh, no kidding! I remember that assignment. She said the same thing to me. <laughs> And he said, and uh, I just thought she was crazy because what I gave her was crap. I knew it was crap. I thought, how does she not know this is crap? So so basically, I think what it was is some pedagogy. She was a really young teacher. You know, she was maybe in her first job. I don't know. But, you know, of course, at the time, she was just a teacher, teacher aged. But in retrospect, I can see that she was she was maybe just out of out of her uh, student teaching. And. um, and she, uh, and it was a pedagogical technique. She was going to get you to write what what you thought you needed to write, and then praise you for it, and that's going to build your self esteem in general because it's going to be about who you really are and blah blah blah. So that you know, it's a I'm I'm a writer completely by the accident of a of a pedagogical technique gone gone berserk. <laughs> I love that. And then I wonder how many other writers came out of that class because they're like, wait a second, I. I got it. I can cling to this. I don't know. And how many of them made a horrible mistake deciding that? Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, because I I worked at it and I finally figured out how to write a little bit. But um, it took a long long time. I, I think with the I think as a writer you got to have the you got to really have know that you have to have the staying power. I mean, after a while, it's just like this is brutal. Why the hell am I doing this? And if you if you don't have the answer for it, where it's just like you can't not then get out just get out while you can you know exactly yeah if you don't feel if you don't feel worse when you're when you're not writing right. then there's no reason to not no, yeah. no no reason to keep at it that's kind of, i'm realizing that's my thing for everything like I, I hate flying i don't like going on planes but i would feel worse if i didn't show up and that's so i get on the plane <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly good analogy yeah <laughs> it, 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 it's uh it's a what do they call it? A call to action, as the as the entrepreneurs would say. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice accent. Uh, <laughs> um, was I going? I was going to ask you something else. Oh, the girl in uh, Switzerland. Did you stay in touch with her? Um, on and off. Yeah. Very, very on and off. Yeah. We came back. We were together for a you know a year or so after that, and then and then uh, and then not. Yeah. And uh, um, I mean, we were. I was eighteen. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I turned 19 while I was in Europe. So um, we were we were very very young, and um, we both ended up having kids um, with other people, obviously. And um, and uh, and I uh, stayed in touch with her until she passed a few years ago. Um, a kind of victim of a, f- a familial uh, tendency to breast cancer. Yeah. yeah. It's those first romances that just are such, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was she was fantastic, and she was um, you know she was just uh, really um, one of a kind, and a, and a preacher's kid. I don't know if you know the myth- mythology of the preacher's kid, but it was a beautiful thing for a high school boy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I bet. Yeah, uh, I was a preacher's kid. No, and I don't think any girls ever thought that of me. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the 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 uh, the, the, the uh, mythos is that uh, that preacher's kids are wild, right? That they're that, right that they're breaking all the rules, and um, and she was, and she was, and she, she was breaking all the rules, and I was breaking them with her. So uh, we we had a great time. So when was it where you're just like, you know what? Um, now I need to get serious about this writing thing, and that now not not that you weren't taking it serious before, but now you're like, you know what? I'm in this. I'm in this game. I gotta go 
new level, next level? Well, I don't, I, you know, I was, um, I was cooking at a college and got, got, uh, got talked into going to the, co- to that college, um, by somebody, um, when I was in my mid twenties and, um, and, and, and I had, I was, I, you know, would every once in a while pull out a notebook before that and, you know, jot some things down and start doing little bits of story, you know, stories, but never, you know, never stayed with anything. And then I, when I started as an undergraduate, I took a creative writing class. And so I actually finished a couple of things and handed them in and published a couple of things in the little literary journal at the university. And, um, um, still wasn't particularly serious, but I had found out that there were these people called professors who read books for a living, and I was in forever. You know, I just like I've been in school ever since, and went straight through grad school. And then in grad school, of course, you write a lot, and, uh, and then I wrote my dissertation. And by at, th- at that point, I was hooked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, what was your dissertation on? Dissertation was something called American Nervousness, 1903 which is the, a history of a nervous disease in, in a single year in American history, um, which I thought of kind of as a, as a comedy of academic over-specialization. Um, but it, you know, it, it reaches out in various ways. And it was based on some kind of literary and historiographical theory that was very important at the, when I, you know, in, the, in those few years that I was in graduate school. So um, I was responding to that. It turned to be, uh, to be my first book. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say, and then the um, and then also crying. You is that the you did the book on crying is yeah. another one too, right? Yeah, the crying. There's a theme though going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, this kind of theme of, uh, of uh, kind of emotional states. Uh, yeah, I was, um, you know, the American nervousness. I a lot of us. I'm in, I'm in graduate school in the 1980s, and uh, it was one of these times when the humanities were under attack. Um, uh, the response of a lot of people in the humanities was to kind of get hyper theoretical and hyper, you know, like kind of scientistic, um, which is why the big, the kind of the explosion of theory. It was a kind of um, the explosion of theory was in, in large part a kind of inferiority complex uh, manifest um, because we were getting attacked. You know, it makes sense, right? The, the university curriculums change over time, uh, and the humanities replaced the classics, you know, right? And when you were, when if you went to, to a university in the early 19th century, you studied Greek and Latin, and maybe a few other little things, you know. But um, but obviously, Greek and Latin redu- was reduced to a tiny part of the curriculum, and uh, the humanities took up a large part of it. Now the sciences take up a, a vast amount of the curriculum. And the humanities has, has shrunk in importance. It's a nat, you know, kind of natural evolution. Some of it good, some of it terrible. Um, and uh, and and so one of the responses of that was to kind of try to try to get very hyper hyper jargonistic, so that nobody could quite tell what you're talking about, and therefore maybe it was important. And so, and then the other the other option was to try to write for a general audience, to try to kind of broaden the appeal of the humanities by doing the opposite, opening it up to a larger audience. And so I thought of this uh, 1903 project as a, a kind of crossover book, as something that would that would be available to general audiences. And my publisher, which was Cornell University Press, they thought it was too. They thought, uh, and so they, they marketed it. They, they had this kind of big uh, 
bullet points on the back. Like academic books don't have these great big, had a great big why 1903 on the back, and then it had these bullet points. It was the first baseball World Series. It was the you know the New York subway system. It was the Erie Canal was completed. There was the the invention of the teddy bear. It just had this list of little things that had happened in 1903, all of which come from a single sentence in the introduction. Wow. <laughs> Because it's not what the book is about, yeah. but um, but they were they were trying to market it to a general audience, and we we all thought it could happen, um, but we were all completely wrong. It was a, it was a very academic book, even though we tried. Uh, but I had been professionally deformed at that point. I've been you know in in an academic environment for eight, ten years by the time it was published, and um, and I didn't know from writing for a general audience. I knew nothing about it. And neither did my editors at Cornell, so it you know it 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 got a lot of review space because they did a great job marketing it, and yeah. then but it it um, it went into bookstores, and then eventually they all came back. Yeah. Um, you know, it sold it sold less than Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, the, um, what was it like when you when you first got uh, published in the literary uh, journal uh, when you were an undergrad? Were, were you like were you were you stoked and showing people the uh, you know essentially your first byline of sorts or your first author? Yeah. That was the first time I realized that this hope that I had been harboring that somehow if I became an author if I had if I had books and I, I remember telling a a girlfriend at one point you know very melodramatically I'm gonna write a book someday and they'll see you know. <laughs> And uh, I, uh, but that when I f- published those first stories, I was I was I I, I felt a, a surge of pride when I first yeah. saw it in print, uh, and then um, then that was gone, and it never came back. I mean, looking at it the next time, I didn't get the same boost, and it was just like I realized, oh, I'm gonna do this, but it's not gonna change anything, and that's really the way it is. You know, you you. I, I, I watch my MFA students, and the, you know, you know this Flannery O'Connor line in uh, in Wise Blood, where she says nobody with a good car in America needs to be justified. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a great, great, great novel. Yeah, yeah. yeah, one of my one of my top ten, and um, and uh, nobody in nobody with a good car in America needs to be justified. It means it in a religious sense, you know, and uh, and and um, I felt like nobody with a book you know a published book needs to be justified but it turns out well you know it really doesn't justify you yeah. you know to, to pretty much anybody ever so you know it, it you know whatever the whatever the hole in your soul is that you think it's going to fill it's not going to fill it i never tell my grad students that so if they're listening but maybe they should <laughs> just skip this part but <laughs> because you know whatever whatever motivates you motivates you so good and but but um but it, you know it really it really doesn't do anything. It's just something else right. sitting on your shelf. It's one of the other books on your shelf. Exactly. And it's interesting you learned it early. See, every time I got a little bit more, I was like, oh, this is this is going to lead to this. And then it does. And it's just like, oh, all right. And you're right about the feeling that the, 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 it can't fill the emptiness in the soul. But I also think, and I try not to, like, I, I, I teach novel writing as, you know, as well and stuff like that. And, I try not to tell them how hard it really is. It's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, in the early days. Yeah. 
And then I get students coming back who've worked on it for like two years and they're going, oh my God, if I would have known how hard this is, I would have never done it. But they're put, they're getting it together. They're putting the good stuff out. So there's there's a beauty of the uh, being naive about it. And I was even talking to a filmmaker earlier. She's like, if I had any clue how hard it was going to be to get my first film out. And she's like, we can't know. We have to kind of go in and just know we're getting dental work done. And it's going to hurt for a long time. Yeah. You know, women who have had um, a bunch of kids say that, you know, the thing that allows them to do it again is that you do forget. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter how hard it is. It, you you kind of forget. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so you're willing to try it again. And uh, and I also, you know, this book on this book called Doing Nothing that I that I wrote um, after, well, a couple, a couple books after crying, that, that um, I, I studied work in that. I studied, you know, what work. Did, read all the studies on work satisfaction, yeah. and um, one of the main, or the single main predictor of work satisfaction is how much control the worker has over their own time and activity. And so the, you know, we say it's hard, and it is hard. But what's really hard is being on an assembly assembly line where you 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 have you're putting widget A into widget B and twisting it and putting it back on the belt and you're doing that and you have to do you know 37 of them a, a minute or you're right where you hold up the line so there, you know that that kind of absolute lack of control or these you know Amazon delivery people who can't take a bathroom break because they, they have no control over their time or their effort or what they're doing at any moment that that's that's hard um, writing is unbelievably easy compared to that because it it is self-willed I, I feel like if I'm put, I can easily put in 16 hours, not 16 hours straight of writing, but 16 hours working on the process of writing or doing an interview here and then going back and working on and put those 16 hours in. It doesn't feel like I've done anything that's hard work, but make me punch a clock. And I, I loaded boxes at UPS at like four in the morning, you know, and it's just like that. That, that was actually kind of that was good because that was strenuous. So that was there was a lot of lifting. And so that was fun. But I was on a. I worked at Genentech, filling um, or putting putting uh, the prescription bottles. I would put the instructions in the prescription bottles, and that was an assembly line. I was there for a week, and I was I was ready to hang myself or just get blackout drunk constantly. I quit that job after a week, and I don't know how the other people did that gig. That was a bad one. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a I had a job supplying the line at a at a factory, and I was basically just bringing the stacks of cardboard boxes. Um, and re- refilling the stack at the end of the, at, at that station on the line, and it was it was um, you know it was one of the things that helped helped me uh, find another another yeah. road. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really liked it. If 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 I was being engaged a little bit, like I, oh my god! But like before, I went to um, I went to Europe with my uh, wife way back when I was married, and I had this horrible temp job at doing this accounting payable or whatever. It's the only way I got through it, because I was just punching these numbers in, was I was doing them in Italian in my head, and I was trying to learn as much Italian as possible. And I fluently can just bust out numbers by the time I got to Italy. I, I, I uh, People were trying to scam me at the... Uh, I remember this one lady was like, she tried to double charge me about, no, 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 signorina, milanitura, chico, you know, I knew, I knew how to say it then, but... It was just like this is this is from a guy who's been working for six months and accounts payable and knows how to say every single Italian number just so he wouldn't his brain wouldn't burst. You know? 
And was this back in the day of lira, or was it euros already? Lira. It was still lira, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah. There, it was in the hundreds of thousands, yeah, right, exactly. for, yeah, yeah, for yeah, a yeah. cup of coffee, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're just like, I'm rich. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> I, I miss, you know, I miss the, um, I haven't been back to Europe since the euro. I'm going this summer, but I miss the old, uh, ex- I, I think I'm going to miss the old exchanges of French franc to the, you know the the lira and all that. Yeah, and it'll be too early to to. Well, oh no, the pound is still the pound, and the Swiss franc is still separate. So oh, you, yeah. you'll have a couple of chances. Yeah, yeah. And Denmark, are they on the euro? Uh, I th- I think maybe Denmark is on the kroner still. Okay. I'm not sure. I don't, yeah. don't really remember. That, I'll be there. So that's what I, I, that's my one that's one of my stops. Cool. I could exchange money. That's all I care about. I want to lose. I want to lose commission and the fees of exchanging money. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's accomplishable. <laughs> I think it's just because um, growing up in the United States, we could just go so far and nothing happens. It's just the same. Yeah. It's just the joy of like being on a train ride for two hours. All of a sudden, you have to show a passport, exchange money. And, all that. and of course, the, I mean, yeah. there's, it's interesting when you end up in these parts of the world, because um, obviously I'm traveling a lot. Um, and uh, like Cambodia was dollarized when I was there. You know, Panama's obviously dollarized. Lots, lots of, lots of, um, you know, places in Central America, uh, even in South America, in uh, in Asia, um, you can you can find these dollarized economies where they're using U.S. dollars. Wow. Um, and the weird thing about I guess that's that, cool for us. It, it is and it isn't because um, what you what they they inspect every bill and it has the least little tear. Or even if the corner's worn off a little bit, they won't. They won't take. They won't accept it because the bank turns them away because the bank won't accept. It. So it's a. It's a. There's some. There's some little. There's some flaws. Flies in the ointment of the dollarized economies, uh, and of course they're they they're poor. They're distressed countries, or they wouldn't have to be dollarized um, for the most part. So I got a business idea. We'll give you a quarter for every note that you can't get past in these in these countries. Send them back to the states, and then we we turn them in. We make money. They make money. Everybody's happy. We get the Nobel Peace Prize. Brilliant. Where where do you want to go? I, I'm thinking I'm thinking Cambodia. Okay. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's still dollarized though. We'll have to find out. All right. And what 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 brings you to all these countries um, and all this travel? Um, I've always um, had a, a kind of wanderlust, kind of like incurable wanderlust. I used to, when I was a kid, I would, uh, I mean, in high school, I would, I would stick out my thumb. This friend of mine who was in my class uh, who told me about Miss Reese uh, using the same technique on him, he and I would, would sometimes stick out our thumbs and just go wherever the car was going. Um, and, and then stick out our thumb and go wherever that car was going. And, and then eventually, you know, I have to get back for dinner, whatever. Right. <laughs> whatever. But in the summer, sometimes I'd go for go for a few days, and um, and so it was a it was um, it was a it was a thing. Wandering wandering away from home was uh, was was my great comfort. So uh, it's kept up. I hopped freight trains a lot when I was young oh, in the in the U.S. I wandered, you know, and again, not always knowing where they were going, um, and. Uh, and um, and did my t- twenty countries in Europe when I was when I was eighteen and nineteen. So that really solidified the bug. I mean, I, there, there were parts of Europe in seventy one and seventy two that were still real peasant um, pockets of peasantry. So in uh, in in Portugal, you know, you'd see the big big wooden wheeled carts 
pulled by donkeys, you know, as the as the main farm uh, transportation vehicle, uh, in for miles and miles and miles. So um, that I was I was really hooked. Um, and and mean you know I've, the last two books that I did before the novel were both travel collections of travel writings, and I'm finishing up the third volume in that series now, and. Uh, and they each have, you know, 40 or 50 countries in them. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just like, I'm going to Papua New Guinea next month uh, and the Solomon Islands. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just, it's just never, I, if, if, I, if I don't have to stop, I'm not going to stop. Fantastic. Well, um, and then you started the uh, Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles Review of Books. Wait, um, well, how did that project come together? What was the, what was the inspiration for that? I was off. I had published an, um, a piece in a literary journal, and the editor was retiring. And he asked if I wanted to be the editor, the next editor of the journal. And uh, and I wasn't sure that I wanted to. I had was not like on my bucket list or anything. Um, but it seemed to me that it would be a great thing for the graduate students at Riverside. Um, and you know, great, good thing for the program to be associated with this journal. It was a, it's a great journal, and um, and I and Chris Abani said, I don't know why you'd buy a used journal um, when you can get a new one for free. And and I said, that's that's pithy and interesting, and I'm not sure exactly what it means. And he said, well, you you know, you, if you can start a journal online now, so it doesn't cost anything. And what are you going to get from this other journal? You're going to get a subscription list of a couple thousand people. If you can't get a couple thousand people to read you, you probably shouldn't bother anyway. What I was thinking was we had 12 people on the faculty at that time, and I thought if we each did one issue, uh, we'd only have to do an issue every th- once every three years. So it could be kind of low impact for the faculty, great for the students, great for the thing. But when he said that, I thought, okay, he's right. I'm not sure that's what I want to do. I'm not sure that's what we should do. And it was right when all of the, the book reviews were folding, right? So LA Times, Boston Globe, you know this, right? You were, you were writing for them, right? Yeah, the Chronicle, uh, the, the Denver, Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, they all, they all folded their, their book review supplements. And, uh, so, and, you know, that's where I first learned about literary culture was in the Sunday supplement book reviews, you know? I mean, I... I wouldn't wouldn't have known much of anything if it weren't for them. I studied those. I mean, I couldn't wait for the Sunday, that, and that was in my place for a week and had underlines and ripped out parts of it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It was it was uh, it was college before I went to college. Yeah. So, um, so I thought you know this generation should have that as well, and uh, and so I I decided well you know if I'm going to do if I'm going to edit something I should edit the new the next book review. Yeah. So I went back to my colleagues and I said, well, here's, here's what, what I'm thinking now. Why don't we start the Los Angeles Review of Books? And uh, everybody said, that's a great idea. We should do that. And what they meant was, that's a great idea. You should do that. <laughs> we, we should do that. And you should do that. And we'll all be on the, uh, the um, masthead. Yeah. No, a lot, of people, a lot of people on my faculty have, have uh, contributed in various ways. But... Um, but yeah, no. You know, you were talking about you know if I had known how much work it would be. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it was it was um, it was sixteen hours a day, seven days a week for seven years, solid. Um, and then I had a job, you know, that I had to do too. So 
um, and and uh, had some books to write. So, yeah, it was a it was an incredibly busy busy uh, time, lot lot of work, um, and and fantastic. You know, like that. I it, I, I could decide what I was going to do yeah. minute by minute because everything needed doing. Somebody needed to to edit the radio show, so. I did that, and somebody had to had to you know edit most of the pieces that came through. I did a lot of that. Somebody had to raise the money for it, and I helped do that. You know, so you know, so um, and I was making. We were. I, I, I assumed that it was the web that we should have a lot of video content. So I was making a lot of short films, doing a lot of short filmed interviews with writers and that kind of thing. Um, so I taught an old dog a lot of new tricks. I learned how to film edit. I learned how to sound edit. I learned how to, you know, I learned, I learned what what HTML was, uh, you know, right. <laughs> and eventually CSS and uh, and a lot of the other. Uh, I don't really know how to do anything JavaScript related, but at any rate, I, I learned a bunch of I learned a bunch of um, you know very very minor programming um, and learned how to talk to programmers, which was more important. Um, and uh, you know, learn how to build websites. Learn how to you know. So it was uh, it was just a kind of uh, a, like uh, being an undergraduate all over again. Here's here's an, here's another new subject for you. Um, I loved it. Were, um, was that the first time you did radio, or had you done a radio pr- uh, program before? Yeah, no, that was the first time. Yeah. So, like, because I did college radio, and I was just like a radio super freak ever since I was a kid. Like, radio saved my life. But one, it was one of the few things that saved my lives. But my life. <laughs> Maybe there are more lives now that I said that plural. Um, but what was it like if I remember my early days of my graveyard shifts on college radio and how terrible I was, like hearing my own voice and freaked out? I don't know if you had that same thing since you were probably older and maybe had a little more because uh, I'm, I'm like sitting there 19 years old going oh, you're listening to KFJC and that uh, you know <laughs> yeah I uh, I had had to get used to my voice yeah. from the music part of my life so you oh, know, okay. I, I had recorded okay. some things and yeah. you know I'd heard some live concerts and had oh. that had that kind of like um, sinking feeling okay. in the pit of my stomach like right. oh my god that's what my voice sounds like that yeah. is just obnoxious I don't want to listen to me I don't see why anybody else should want to listen to me that kind of thing so I had that experience in the music in the music part of my life and I, and I was I was kind of over that or used to my voice okay. on tape so that helped also being the editor helped because I could take out roughly a hundred ums and ahs out of every interview and that and make myself sound a little bit smarter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I stopped taking out the ums and ahs because one, it takes so much time, and two, I'm I, I'm just having a, I'm having fun with the mistakes. Like these days, I listen to too many podcasts and they sound tight, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to be tight. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's probably the wrong idea, and the, but yeah, it's it's where where I am now. It is definitely where we're at now, and the and you know, um, we, I've had conversations with uh, with. Uh, Medea Oker and uh, and Kate Wolf are now doing the radio show for Larb, and they have a they have they're they're kind of not quite podcast native, but they're but they you know they're they they're very much in the podcast world, and so they uh, they like a looser a looser show too, and uh, and I'm like you know well wouldn't hurt to like especially like an, an opening line like rehearse an opening line so you know it's a, it's so that, that you know that kind of, and they were like no no we like the we like the rough edges and uh, like, okay good enough you know <laughs> you're, you're the boss <laughs> uh, and uh, 
but I still I still have a kind of respect for the for the for the polish, you know, for the for the edit, the the the, the tighten up the thing. It it still to me seems like um, a kindness you can do to a to an audience, yeah. but but uh, I get I get what the, I get the opposite, which is there's you know the we we distrust polish. Fox News is plenty polished, you know. Um, we don't, you know, we don't, we don't like that crap, uh, and we shouldn't like that crap, you know. So, um, and and uh, and to the extent that the you know CNN and a lot of the, you know they you know the they don't, polish may in turn in fact be overrated. Yeah, it's I, it's aesthetic. It's funny um, when I used to do drinks with Tony in studio. And I, I would have an author on the first hour, and it'd be bands or musicians the second hour. And there, you know, there were headphones for everyone. But if it was an author, try to put on headphones. I'd be like, uh-uh, no, 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 no headphones to the author because I don't want them to hear their voice for the first time. Musicians, fine, because I know they all know. I don't want that look of horror, and then there, and then we're not going to have a good conversation. I'm like, I know the levels. I got them. We're good. Yeah, yeah. I I I really liked having the headphones because I. I know that my I have this I have one characteristic problem with my voice, which is that at certain points, and it tends to be when I feel like I'm saying something that's actually mine, rather than just kind of saying things that are a pastiche of what things that other people have said. Uh, I tend to all of a sudden get a little quiet, and I, I need to, right? I need to, and so, um, with the headphones, keep me from from having these kind of wild variations of, uh, of volume yeah. uh, and I just move in and out of the mic a little bit to compensate but yeah. uh, and I can kind of now at this point I've done it enough I can feel it coming and I can I can compensate but but you'll you'll see when you when you listen to this yeah there are gonna be moments where all of a sudden it's, it's like what did he say I, I'm, I don't know got a little quiet there I don't know why <laughs> I, I, I I don't know I mean it's I don't think it's as bad on you but there are times when I would you know, I got my one monitor here, so I have to go closer and closer. There's been times where people are very scared of this microphone, and I'm almost like shoving it down their throat as they're going back and back. It is the size of a of a baseball bat, basically. So it, I can I can understand why. Yeah, yeah. I I don't. I was gonna get I was gonna get new gear where I can mic both people, and then I realized this is kind of a baton of sorts. To it's almost like it's almost like we have our therapy like baby here and i'm like okay now it's your turn yeah yeah and it is actually the size of a, a baton like in a relay race right it, and yeah, yeah. and uh, and and i noticed that you can you can just kind of uh it, you you can wrist it yeah. to get from my mouth to your mouth with the microphone you just it's just a it's just a, a turn of your wrist you don't have yeah. to you don't have to move your arm in and out right. which also would be frightening if you were like kind of punching at me all the time with a microphone so yeah i try to be as non non-intrusive as possible and went and back like years ago when i was just obsessed over the uh, psychology of uh, interview, I learned that to get the longer mic, so my hand would be far away, so it, it wouldn't feel like I was touching you and my I wasn't invading your space. It was just the microphone. Just the microphone. Yeah. 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 I mean, because if I was like this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, saw, I saw your face just go, "Whoa, that hand is too close to me." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't do that again. <laughs> That's fantastic. So. Um, when do you turn in the uh, the travel book that you're working on now? Uh, I just I just turned in a, a manuscript uh, for a, for another book actually that, called Aimlessness and Introduction. Yeah. 
which is for uh, for Columbia University Press. It's a little a little philosophy series, uh, a, a, not a little philosophy series. I think it's going to be a, a biggish philosophy series in that it's going to they're going to do quite a few books in it. But but it's uh, it's they're little books, they're short books. So this is a thirty thousand word book, thirty thirty to thirty five thousand word book, and uh, and it and it and it's really kind of fun. I think it's a it's a um, Talks about some philosophers, Nietzsche and uh, E.M. Charon and uh, and Simon Weil and um, number number of interesting people who who kind of wandered around the idea of aimlessness um, and uh, and then Lao Tzu and um, and uh, some some other other traditions and and it's kind of kind of fun and then it has uh, because I talk about nomadicism which is uh, this french philosopher Gilles Deleuze had a had a Deleuze and Guattari had a thing about nomadic thought uh, which they thought was better than kind of um, linear you know argumentative thought so they had an argument about about nomadicism uh, which is really kind of bullshit i guess i'd say in a, in a word and uh, and and so I was. I talk about them a fair amount um, as one strain in, in philosophical thought. Uh, and uh, at the same time that I was writing it, I was in Mongolia, and I was actually hanging out with nomads um, and learning about their nomadic life. So there are parts of it which are about my my time in in uh, Mongolia, parts of which are about reading these French philosophers, parts of it which are about reading all of his other stuff, part of it, part of it is about thinking about the essay as a form um, and the, the kind of spiral nature of the essay and the kind of representation of thinking that the essay is, uh, the res- representation of a person thinking, a lyric essay. And uh, and so it's a it's a it's a and and it's a collage and there's a lot of stuff about collage in it and it's a it's a really it's a and it's all little clippy things and all like it cut and pasted together and uh, I, I I really I'm fond of this one of course I haven't published it yet so I can remain fond of it right yeah it's, uh, when does that come out uh, that'll be out in the fall okay and then and then I might have to uh, ping you again after I read that. all right great yeah. And then, uh, and then the travel book. Um, I'm, I've got, uh, I've got uh, four or five or six of the of the twenty some sections still need still need some some words added, some some scenes added. Um, I'm thinking, you know, it'll it'll be another month or two, maybe three. Finish that one up. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Let's do it again. Right. Tom Letts on Drinks with Tony. Check out his debut novel, Born Slippy. He's also the author of And the Monkey Learned Nothing, Dispatches from a Life in Transit, and Doing Nothing, A History of Loafers, Loungers, Slackers, and Bums in America, and much, much more. And hey, it's book coaching season. You know what that means. I'm taking on new clients. Do you have a book? Do you have a novel? Do you have a memoir on you? Are you at the idea stage, or do you have a finished first draft? I've worked with authors from beginning idea to all the way through to final draft to uh, send to agents and publishers. So if you'd like to um, discuss book coaching, go to drinkswithtony.com slash book for more information. That's drinkswithtony.com slash book. What? Drinkswithtony.com slash book if you're interested in working with me. And next week on Drinks with Tony, we have 
D- Danko Jones, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs>